Welcome to Easter and welcome to week five of doing church in a very different way. And I think for the first time, probably in history, we're celebrating Easter, not gathering together. So welcome to the very first global virtual Easter. And yet, though it's different, we with joy and confidence join the global church in all of its forms and say in our living rooms and in our bedrooms here in Toronto and all around the world, happy Easter. He is risen. What do you say back? He is risen indeed. Today, billions of us in this time gather, even though the shadow of death seems strong, where we are genuinely experiencing grief and fear and isolation and the loss of job and the loss of stability and sickness, and many of us are overcome by pain and panic and the pandemic, and yet we still gather and declare that Jesus rose from the dead and there is real hope, not just wishful thinking. And yet, many of us are struggling this Easter. We're wondering and we are doubting. Hope in a global pandemic. Hope when the market is so volatile. Hope when I just lost my job. Hope when the person I love is sick. Hope when the person I love has died. I mean, hope when the new normal might not ever be the normal I used to love and we might never get back there again. Yes. Our faith grows in the darkest of places. Or as one older pop song went, the shadow proves the sunshine. Christians sometimes seem to be afraid of doubt or those that are doubting. They don't talk about very much, doubt very much or they suppress it or they refuse to think about it or they run from anything that might look like it. They're afraid that maybe they're insulting God or calling his will or character into question or they're afraid if they go there, they'll never make it back again to Jesus or faith. Or they're afraid maybe of damaging someone else's belief or faith. And yet in this time of unrest, in this Easter season, doubt cannot be avoided. And that's not just fine. It's actually a gift. It's good. So let's just stop and define some terms. Alistair McGrath, who is a world-class theologian and also a world-class scientist, helps us understand the difference between unbelief, skepticism, and doubt, and why they're not the same. Unbelief is a decision not to believe in God. Unbelief is an act of the will rather than a difficulty of understanding something. Skepticism is a decision to doubt everything deliberately as a matter of principle. Oh, but doubt. Doubt means asking questions or voicing uncertainties from a standpoint of faith. You believe, but you've got difficulties with that faith. You're worried about it in some way. So faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive, but faith and unbelief, oh, they are. You see, the one thing I love about Easter, whether you're a seeker or a skeptic, an unbeliever, a nothing, a spiritual person, or a Christian, what I, what I love about God in Scripture is they never gloss over human frailty. They never quickly dismiss question or doubt. The Bible is full of what I would call the faithful doubting. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Esther, David, Jeremiah, Thomas, Peter, the list goes on and on. All great leaders and all followers are frail, torn between faith and doubt, question and belief, the seen and unseen. Martin Luther, the great reformer, rightly described Christians as being sinful and saved at the same time. You see, doubt is actually a living sign and a reminder of our frailty, of our limited capacity to understand everything. It's, it's actually a sign of sinfulness too, but it also proves real faith. See, dead things don't struggle. Living things do. 
By the way, doubt is at the center of the Easter story. Found in some of the most committed. Doubt is found in the middle of the greatest story and miracle in history. Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. One described the very first Easter day like this. Now Jesus is dead. His body that radiated light has been destroyed under the hands of his torturers. His limbs have been plowed by the instruments of violence and hatred. His eyes have become empty holes. His hands have lost their grip, his feet their firmness. He has become a nobody among nobodies. All has come to nothing, for they had lost him. Oh, and not just him, but him and themselves. The energy that had filled their days uh, had left them completely. These two human beings, walking home without having a real home, returning to what now has just become memory. See, our Easter story begins with two men walking and living what our world is going through and what you're going through right now. Loss, fear, grief, uncertainty, panic, sadness, and the feeling that it would never be the same again. We enter the Easter story in Luke 24, 13. If you've got a Bible virtually, physically, you can turn there. If not, it's there for you to see. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. It's Sunday. The miracles already happened. Jesus is physically risen from the dead. That's, by the way, why Christians meet on Sunday. You might not know that. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday reminds us Jesus physically came back from the dead. But these two have no reason to celebrate. It says that they were walking and talking with each other. In the original language, in ancient Greek, it's, it's stronger. They were debating with each other. They were arguing. They were wrestling over what? Well, the things that had happened Jesus' amazing entrance into Jerusalem, his false trials, his execution, his death, and his burial. But then two women or a group of women run back saying they've seen angels and the angels say Jesus is alive. What to think? They're unsure. All their hopes are nailed to a cross in the very place they thought Jesus would rule from and make everything right. This announcement, this claim Jesus is really raised from the dead has not convinced them at all. I mean, Jews, you might not know this, were the only ones religiously or philosophically to actually teach and believe in physical resurrection at that time. And they taught that it would happen, but it would happen at the end of time to everyone. So a proclamation that one guy just came back from the dead, no, 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 this cannot be right. It violates all of our theology, all of our Jewish understanding. Evidence. Where's the evidence? Oh, but deeper than philosophy or theology, emotionally. These two, I am sure, were saying, if he shows up, fine, but I am never going to raise my hopes up that high again. I cannot take the pain. I don't think I could ever recover. So as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside of them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus enters into their journey, into their loss, into their pain, into their doubt, into their experience of helplessness and grieving over what? Well, death. And Jesus comes alongside of them. Jesus places himself in their conversation, in their journey. Notice Jesus draws himself to them. They're not looking for him. They don't want to see Jesus. And why would they anyways? They're not looking anymore. I mean, hope has been snuffed out. Our leaders have failed. Our crowds have failed. We failed. Jesus failed. So forward we go into a darker new unknown. Oh, let me read this verse again. They were kept 
from recognizing him. Oh, this is not just a lack of understanding. God himself is keeping them in the dark just for now. The only person in the full, right, in the full know right now is Jesus. Now, if you read the Gospel of Luke, I'd encourage you to do it, and his second book, Acts, you'll notice something. For Luke, who was, by the way, a medical doctor who wrote all this, when he talks about sight, it always means faith and salvation for him. See, Jesus had a normal human appearance. He was really physically walking alongside of them. He was really there. He really was risen from the dead. But it takes God's intervention so they can really not just know about him, but actually know him. Don't forget that. As, as another wrote, we cannot see the risen Christ, although he be walking with us, until he wills to disclose himself. Years later, Augustine, one of the greatest Christian writers, thinking on this very passage, wrote these words. The Lord's absence is not an absence. Have faith. The one you cannot see is with you. Those two, even when the Lord was talking to them, did not have the faith because they did not believe he had risen, nor did they have any hope that he would rise again. They had lost all faith. They had lost all hope. They were walking along dead, but Jesus was alive. They were walking along dead with life itself. Life was walking with them, but in their hearts, life had not yet been recovered. So Jesus does this. He asked them a question. What are you discussing together as you're walking along? And they stood still and their faces were downcast. The journey like pauses for a moment. They stop. They stood still. Emotions, grand emotions start stirring. Remorse, stunned, broken. The word downcast doesn't just mean sorrow. It means anger. This journey will take many twists and turns, but it starts with just, not just loss, but absolute loss. One of them, verse 18, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's like in shock, in, in disbelief, almost angry at Jesus, like, are you a tourist? <laughs> you a stranger, a foreigner? Did you miss like the CNN, CBC, Fox? Did you miss like the daily governmental briefings that all of us can't get away from? Did you miss it on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook? Has, has no one FaceTime you? Did anyone on Zoom or Google Hangouts not talk to you about this profound event? Everything has changed. Nothing is the same. I don't think we can ever go back to the way it was. I'm so frustrated, so scared, so bored, so angry, so nothing. Jesus just says, oh, what things? Jesus moves closer and engages them. He moves their eyes from each other to the ground to him. He wants to hear their story. He, he wants to have them spell it out. So with lots of emotion, probably gritted teeth, they respond like this. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, by the way, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people and, and the chief priests and the rulers, they handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Power is where we get our English word dynamite from. Uh, Jesus, they say, was an unbelievably powerful man. His teaching was profound, but his acts were just as profound. I mean, he literally healed people from leprosy. Multiple people that were dead for days, he brought back to, to life. He, he cast out demons and they left. It was like the kingdom of God was here. Oh, and then they admit their biggest grief. Verse 21, we had hoped that he'd be, he was going to be the one that would redeem Israel. And what is more, it's been the third day since all this took place. The loss now grows deeper. I mean, at this moment in history, they're part of a nation under occupation. Personal rights, freedoms, gone. Crucifixion didn't just happen to Jesus. It was normal. 
Fear, violence, communal repression, now the one that they thought would help them know God better and offer forgiveness, no deeper than that. The one they thought would free their nation is executed. The anger and grief is deeper. He was supposed to deal with our fears. He was supposed to fulfill all our national aspirations to, fulfill, to affirm and, and, and affirm our religious hopes and our, our dreams. It's all lost, and it was just lost in like one day. I mean, I don't think we'll ever be able to go back ever again. Oh, oh, hold on. Did you catch it? This first Easter morning, this is it, right? No public services, no millions upon hundreds of millions of Christians gathering and celebrating, no bells ringing, no songs that are shouting out that he's risen. No, he's risen. He's risen indeed. No one's going home for some big meal with the family to celebrate. No, no. His followers at this moment are in isolation, fearing they would die. So just like this Easter that we're celebrating today, the first Easter actually was filled with confusion, skepticism, grief and loss, and isolation on a dusty road outside of Jerusalem. And in this moment where it seems all is lost, this is where Luke introduces hope. Verse 22. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find Jesus' body, and they came and told us they saw a vision of angels who said he was alive, and then some of, some of our companions, they went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Oh, see, the difference between these two and the women is sight, understanding, illumination, faith, encounter. The angel said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Their journey, unlike the women's journey, is full of doubt and skepticism. Actually, they've moved to jaded unbelief, but Jesus will not let them sit there very long. And just the same with some of you, Jesus won't let you sit there much longer either. Suddenly, Jesus speaks. Uh, he moves from listener to speaker directly in a, in a gentle but pointed way. He says almost to the shock of his unaware friends, how foolish you are. How slow of your hearts to believe all that the prophet spoke about. Foolish doesn't mean idiotic or moronic. You're stupid. It was a word for philosophers. Uh, philosophers used to mean you just don't have all the facts. But, but not just foolish, but slow to believe. A failure to fully embrace and see Jesus' identity, his teaching. Do you not hear? Do you not believe? Do you not see? See, this is a wake-up call, the ripping off of blinders, the tearing down of all these protective deceptions. I love when Henry Nouwen wrote this. The stranger had to call them foolish to make them see. And what's the challenge? It's the trust. They didn't trust that their experience was more than the experience of loss. They did not trust that there was nothing else to do but go home and take up their old way of living again. Slow to believe, slow to trust, and any larger scheme of things, slow to jump over their many complaints and discover the wide spectrum of new opportunities, slow to move beyond the pains of the moment and see that as much, uh, as much part, a part of a much larger healing process. Jesus says, did you not see that the Christ had to suffer these things and then enter into glory? Their, their response would be, no. 
No, 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 no. We're, we as Orthodox Jews get this. See, see, the Messiah is going to be like this incredible leader, like David 2.0. He's going to show up. He's going to be a profound religious leader and a military leader, and he's going to lead us to victory, not defeat. He's going to throw out the Romans. He's going to restore the temple and deal with all the Jews that are compromised, and we're going to become the center of the world, and everything's going to be made right. But for three years, Jesus had been teaching them he had to suffer, and they did not get it, or maybe they didn't want to get it. Uh, This, by the way, is the truth of Easter. The terrible events that took place, the death of Jesus was the plan of God to bring deliverance to the world. God within himself so loved the world that he sent himself. It says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, Jesus explained to them what, uh, what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. The Old Testament is God's word, but was a foreshadow uh, given to prepare the world for Jesus. Now he's walking with them and he's opening the Old Testament and telling them, of course, the Messiah had to suffer. But let's just all stop here for a moment. There's something even more amazing here that every one of us needs to see on this Easter day, especially if you're a seeker or a skeptic or you're wondering. See, this moment sets apart Jesus from every other philosophical and religious leader that has ever existed. It was Peter Kreef that wrote these words. All other great religious teachers put themselves under their own message. They point away from themselves to their teaching. So Buddha said, look not to me, look to my teaching. Jesus said, no, no, come to me. Buddha said, be a lamp to yourself. Jesus says, no, no, I'm the light of the world, John 9, 5. Moses and Muhammad claimed we are only prophets of God. Jesus, read John 8, says, no, no, I am God, John 8, 58. Any religion could survive the loss of their founder. If Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius were suddenly proven to be mythical or not historical figures, the religions that stem from them might still survive. But Christianity could never survive without Jesus. For other religious, religious founders always claims that they taught the truth. Jesus claimed to be the truth. That's why C.S. Lewis famed atheist turned Christian university professor said, when you really listen to the words of Jesus, you must come to the conclusion either he's a psycho, he's a liar, he's Satan, or he's God in flesh. That's why on Easter, we don't just proclaim that this is some news or good news or great news. No, it's the best news because it's hope. Now the journey takes another turn. Hope is about to spring up even stronger and more. It says in verse 28, as they approached Emmaus, the village to which they were going, Jesus acted like he was going to go a little farther. And they urged him strongly, no, no, stay with us. Come to our house. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in and he stayed with them. The journey has moved Jesus from stranger to friend again. The two now seem to have joy and hope that wasn't there just an hour before. I've heard you. You got to come in my house. You got to talk with me. Hope is getting closer. By the way, this is why around the world for hundreds, thousands of years, monks in the evening, when they pray, always chant this, stay with us, Lord. The evening is falling. And so do you notice these two invite Jesus into their where? Home. And it's at home, not in church, not at their job, Not in some gathering. No, it's at their home that everything changes. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. This immediately reminds us of two things. When Jesus had two loaves and five fish and fed the 5,000, but it also reminds us 
of what happened just before Good Friday, what, what took, took place at the Passover where Jesus, remember, he took a cup of wine and he took some bread at the Passover meal and said, my body's going to be broken like this and this cup of wine represents my blood that's going to be spilled and if you believe in me, forgiveness of sins will be given out and you can reconnect with God again. And it says, when that happened in their home, at their table, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. See, Jesus lets them see him. He gives them faith and life and resurrection power. They don't just see Jesus physically, but they now recognize him. And this new sight is the greatest reversal in history. All the way back at the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, right when they ate that fruit, it says their eyes of of both of them, the eyes of both of them are open and they recognize they were naked. And yet now... The one that overcame all the results of that first eye-opening experience opens the eyes of two other people so they could not only see, but they could actually know the God that Adam and Eve used to walk with and and they're given hope that Eden could be restored again. It says they asked each other, was not our hearts burning within us when he talked to us on the road and opened the Old Testament to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and they said, it's true, Jesus has risen. He has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So, hey everyone, this Easter, Jesus is actually alive. It's true, it's real, it happened. It changed everything. Oh, oh, did you notice it? Everything in the Easter story changed at home. Jesus is at home with you right now. He's sitting with you in your living room or at your kitchen table or in your bedroom right now. To all of you who are seekers or skeptics, you who are spiritual or nothing, you who call yourself Christian but you're not followers of Jesus, listen. This Easter, the heart of God for you is expressed in love, but also I hope you're realizing you can't sit on the fence with Jesus and his work. You must embrace him or reject him because he claims too much. The Bible says no matter how good you are or bad you are, religious or unreligious, every human being is lost and blind like those two men. We're unable to know God or see God or connect with God by our own actions because of sin. The world, by the way, is divided by so many views and so many ideas. But when you really think about it, most people live only one of two ways. One group's all about moral conformity. Let's be right, do right, let's be religious, and let's, let's make the rules. The other is about being progressive and self-discovery and my story and my experience and my views. Like the two walking down that road arguing, these two groups debate with each other all the time and don't actually realize they're exactly the same. Both trust in and end up relying on self. And everyone's blind. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, writes this. The moral conformist says the immoral people, the people who do their own thing, they're the problem. The progressive people, they're the problem with the world. And moral people are the solution. The advocates of self-discovery say, no, it's those bigoted people. Those people who think that they have the truth. They're the problem with the world. And progressive people, they're the solution. Each side says our way is the way the world will be righted. And if you're not with us, you're against us. Now, are we to conclude, he writes, that everyone falls within one or two of these categories? Well, yes and no. A great number of people, of course, have temperaments that lean you one way or another. Sometimes people try one for a while and then they go and in a different season try another part of it. 
Some have tried moral conformity and found it crushing and they have some dramatic moment of self-discovery. Others have the opposite moment. Some people combine both approaches under the roof of their same personality. But look, despite those variations, these are still only two primary approaches of dealing with life. But the message of Jesus and the message of Easter is that both of these approaches are wrong. His teaching, his life, his death, his literal, real resurrection, he himself illustrates a radical alternative. In other words, our eyes must be open to another. We all need this eye-opening moment. So right now, in this moment, Jesus has come beside you. He's actually revealing himself to you right now. And he's saying, I am the only message. Now you know my claims and you know who I am. And at this moment, he's saying, would you come and eat with me? Would you let me break bread with you? Uh, Could I give you a real personal relationship? Not just another mystical experience. Not just another set of personal experiences of self-discovery. Not just another set of dead philosophical ideas. The choice is to declare Jesus as the son of God. The choice is to actually say you are the only way to heaven. The choice before you is to turn from a life of sin. In other words, for some of you to say, actually, I can't control my life or my destiny. Some of you need to lay down moral conformity and say, actually, I've been religious and really good and really kind and really rigid and it's produced nothing. Most of you, though, probably need to lay down self-discovery, the great idol of being progressive. And my story will, listen, all of us can't trust in ourselves. That's why Jesus is called the Savior. He needs to be Savior and Lord and change us. As Augustine also wrote, my soul is restless until it finds rest in you, O God. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus, not counting sins, people's sins against them. I told this years ago at another Easter celebration. Let me do it again. In the 1980s, a professor was interviewing a man from the African context who had become a Christian out of a Muslim background. And some of his friends, of course, were very disturbed that he'd left the Muslim faith and become a Christian. And they grilled him, why have you become a Christian? He answered, well, it's like this. I suppose you were going down the road and suddenly the road forked in two directions and you really did not know which way to go. And sitting at the fork in the road, there were two men. One was dead and one was alive, which one would you ask which way to go? He said, of course, the alive one. Now, for all of you who are skeptical and seeking and trying to understand and spiritual, I'm going to give you two things to do out of this Easter moment. One, if you want to keep exploring this and wrestling this through right after Easter is done, you can go to our website, sanctuschurch.com, and sign up for something called Alpha. And we're going to do this virtually. And this gives you an opportunity to explore the Christian faith and wrestle and say anything you want. Is God good? Good. Why is there evil in the world? How do I read my Bible? What did Jesus claim? Was he really a real person? All that stuff. And you can sign up so easily. It's designed specifically for you to discover and question faith. And we'd love to invite you to do that. But maybe others of you are actually like, no, as you've been preaching, actually, I know it's true and I want to meet him. I'm going to give you a chance to do that in a moment. But before I do that, let me just speak to the rest of us who are Christians. I just want to declare to you this Easter, he's risen and we know him and it's real. Our hearts, 2,000 years, are still burning within us. But maybe you've come to this Easter and, and your heart is not burning like it used to. And maybe you want to ask the question, why is the fire a little bit lower? Well, lots of things, good things, sports, travel, retirement, jobs, sleep. 
A culture of busyness. The modern blur of the GTA life causes a blur in priorities. And then there's sinful things in our life. Gossip, secret sexual sin, unforgiveness, bitterness, anger. Maybe you've gone to other spiritual influences, lack of Christian community, lack of scripture, lack of prayer. The list goes on. Can I just say, not just as a pastor or a spiritual leader, just as a fellow Christian, a fellow human being, what this pandemic has exposed is actually what a lot of things are for real. One way that God is using this crisis in the global church and in our church in this Easter is actually to expose things and then maybe to purify us so we could come back to our first love. I'd really encourage you to take time this Easter to keep praying that this moment would not be wasted, but actually would bring you back to your first love. Now, so much of what you've been relying on or been entertained by or been distracted by maybe has decreased or gone away. I I just want to end this Easter message by declaring this. When it feels like there's no hope, oh no, no. There's hope. Jesus literally, for real, is alive. 2,000 years ago, 30 years after Jesus physically rose from the dead, our enemy who became one of our great leaders, Saul who became Paul, wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 15.3. I pass on to you what was most important and then was passed on to me. Jesus died for our sins just as the scriptures declared, he was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures declared. So Jesus, everyone, is alive. He's overcome our sin, he's conquered death itself, he's overcome Satan and his work, and for all of us who have embraced him, he has given all of this to us. When we sin, he forgives us. When we face sickness and old age and death, we know that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead, and that is our promise that we will be physically resurrected from the dead. This, like I said a few weeks ago, is the difference maker between panic and peace, hope and hopelessness, being lost and being found. As Paul wrote in one of his earliest books in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who have died, so you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. We don't deal with fear the same way. We don't grieve death the same way because we have hope. And this is what in this Easter season, on this Easter Sunday, for the first time virtually around the world, we still declare we live in and under and around the hope that Jesus is risen from the dead. And we can show our neighbors and confess to our neighbors and share with our neighbors and friends that what I said a few weeks ago is true, that the worst thing, as one said, is not the last thing. So at this moment, we now, in our living rooms and in our bedrooms and at our kitchen tables, we join with all of creation, with all the angels and all the powers of heaven and all the cherubim and seraphim and the glorious company, company of the apostles and, and the prophets and, and the martyrs and with every Christian in your holy church around the world and already in heaven. And we declare that Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. So let, let's just take a moment and let's pray into this moment. Number one, thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, you're willing to come. Thank you, Holy Spirit, you show us Jesus. And so all of us as Christians just want to say you are risen, you are risen indeed. Thank you that forgiveness is true. Thank you that sin and death and sickness does not have the end say. Thank you that the resurrection is true. And thank you we can have hope today. And Holy Spirit, we pray in this moment through Sanctus Church, you would purify us more, that we'd be more in love, that our hearts would burn more for Jesus in this season than before. 
for. Continue to burn away the things that aren't helpful and allow purity to come through this. Also, I pray for hope and encouragement across our church to remain faithful, knowing that the resurrection is more powerful than fear or financial fear or death itself, that you will provide ultimately in the end. And lastly, I just want to say, if you have never accepted Jesus, this is the moment, and this is all you need to pray, wherever you might be in the world, to say, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you existed, but I now want to know you. So open my eyes like you open the eyes of those two. I confess that I'm sinful. And right now, whoever you are, you can say you're sinful because of self-discovery and making your own path, or you've, you've trusted in moral conformity or a mix of both. Just tell them and say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. I believe you lived, you died, you rose again, and I'm asking you to cover me. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins, to make me clean and pure and right. And I'm asking you to change my life. I want purpose in this life. I want to not be alone when I die, and I want resurrection. I trust in Jesus alone. I turn from every other leader, every other thinking moment, every other process, and I say yes to Jesus Christ. Make me a new child. Make me a new creation. Help me to have hope this Easter. I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all said across the church everywhere, amen. I I leave you with this. Remember, Jesus is alive. We do not grieve like the rest of the world does. We have hope. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Happy Easter to all of you today.